Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Nick and Katie and the others. My name is Marshall, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be teaching on the passage that uh, Walter just read for us just a moment ago. Uh, I want to call your attention to a couple of items, actual physical items. I forgot to bring my bulletin up. First, if you want to look at the cover of your bulletin, you see there's a painting by our own Ellen Bender uh, of Remember and Become. Those are actually uh, a painting uh, commemorating Joshua chapter 4 when the Israelite priests and they brought stones out of the river and set them up as a memorial uh, of what God had done for them when they crossed into the promised land. I'll be preaching on that probably in January. Uh, but that was the theme of our 20-year uh, celebration. This weekend, this week, uh, marks the 20th celebration anniversary of our church, and our theme was Remember and Become. And that was a, a, a picture that we had commissioned for, uh, for that evening. So that's what that's about. I also want to call your attention to a couple items. I normally don't do the swag show up here, uh, but uh, I'm about to start a series on the Gospel of Matthew. And we have purchased some books that are for sale in the foyer that I would highly commend if you have not read either of these. One is Dane Ortland, who's a Chicago area preacher and uh, scholar. He's written a book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Suffers, a devotional book, really good. And then if you've never read the Jesus Storybook Bible, you should buy this and read this. This is not just for children. You should read it to your children, uh, but it's amazing. Like I, when I'm doing a sermon, I'm like, what's, what's this say? Because this is really helpful. Uh, so I commend to you to uh, those resources there for sale in, in the foyer. But let me go to prayer, and uh, I do want to pray in just a moment here for our sermon, uh, but also this is the 20th anniversary weekend of 9-11, so I will be praying uh, as we also remember that moment in our nation and world's history. So would you pray with me? God, yesterday, or Friday night, I should say, our church gathered to remember and become. Remember what you have done over 20 years of faithfulness and imagine what you are calling us to become. We do pray, God, that you would make us people who remember well, who give thanks well, and can imagine bright futures for the way that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on the North Shore as it is in heaven. And also, also the country yesterday particularly, we remember we remembered that grievous day 20 years ago. Those of us who are old enough remember exactly where we were when we heard the news that this country was under attack. So God, we remember and we grieve. We remember the frontline responders so moving, those firefighters and policemen who moved towards trouble, around 400 of them giving their lives, trying to save others. God, we remember the widows and the widowers the children who lost a parent or a grandparent that day who never knew because their lives were lost. We remember those folks. And God, we do pray for the ripples of that war, even as we feel it now with the Afghan refugees, some of whom will be coming to Chicago in just the next few days, the ripples of that day that echo down into our age. And God, as we consider that grievous day, as we consider what happened to our world and continues to happen, God, we look to you, Jesus, as the bringer of peace, as the one who will one day wipe away the tears from our eyes, who will one day break the sword and bring about peace, and who will one day, even as we look at today, banish disease from the world. And so, God, we do live in a world of sadness and grief and brokenness, but we look to you, Jesus, as the one who brings and gives life, even in this passage before us today. Would you be with us, God, in the teaching of your word? For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen. Well, it's the start of school, it's the end of summer, it's the beginning of fall. I have put on a suit and tie. Uh, it seems that we are starting something new, and that is a sermon series. 
And, you know, as I thought about this and prayed about this over the summer, it has been a tough year and a half, has it not? And as I thought and prayed, I decided, you know, what I want us to do is to gather, to regather around Jesus, who is the main thing. Some of you would have read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, years ago, and maybe the most famous sentence of that book is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. And the amazing thing about Jesus is Jesus continues to be a compelling figure. Christianity, maybe not so compelling to so many. Christians, certainly not as compelling. But Jesus continues to compel people in our world uh, and in history. Uh, this week I was randomly reading about the rise of Islam in the 7th century. And Jesus was a compelling enough figure to Muhammad to be included in the Quran. I did not realize this, but the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed is actually referenced in the Quran. There was an article a few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal that some of you would have seen. The title of the article is The Appeal of Giant Jesus Statues. And you would know the great Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro. But you might not know that in the last hundred years there have been about three dozen of these built around the world. Including one that is being built 700 miles to the south of Rio that is taller than Christ the Redeemer. There's a taller one still in Indonesia. And the tallest one yet planned is being planned in Mexico right now. The appeal of giant Jesus statues. So that's a historical appeal, a global appeal. How about pop culture? The Australian rock singer and film uh, writer Nick Cave, who is not a Christian, was asked because of his poetic instincts to read the Gospel of Mark and write an essay about it. This is what Nick Cave wrote. The Christ that emerges from Mark, tramping through the haphazard events of his life, had a ringing intensity about him that I could not resist. Christ spoke to me through his isolation, through the burden of his death, through his rage at the mundane, through his sorrow. Jesus continues to compel. A personal story. You may know that our family is a host family for the ministry called Safe Families, where children who are in certain situations come live with you for a certain period of time. And on several occasions, children have come to live with us for, for a season. And earlier this summer, a five-year-old Puerto Rican girl from the city stayed with us for two weeks to help her mom out. Now, when we take a safe family child into our home, we just kind of integrate them into our life. We kind of do what we do. We do what we have been doing. And that includes every evening we read a storybook, uh, a children's Bible, uh, with our six, five, now six-year-old son. That's part of our routine. And so we just include the safe family child in that reading as a part of what we do. Now, when we uh, were doing this, uh, we were reading a children's storybook Bible. We were in the Old Testament. I think we were in, like, Numbers, uh, this uh, children's storybook Bible that covers all the Bible. And we were in the Old Testament. But it became clear pretty quickly that this little girl had never been exposed to Jesus or to Christianity. And so I told my son, five years at the time, I said, hey, bud, uh, for the time that Serenity is with us, Let's take a break from this Old Testament and let's just talk about Jesus and his story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so that's what we did for those two weeks. And it was so cool to watch someone hear the story for the first time. To hear about Jesus for the first time. She was transfixed as a five-year-old. I kind of spaced things out because I wanted to time it so that the last night she was with us, we would read the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But even three days before that, she had turned to me and she said, is he going to die? 
She intuited it. She was that compelled. Jesus is ever and always compelling. And by the way, if you have never read the Jesus Storybook Bible, you should. So this fall, we're going to regather. We're going to regather around Jesus. The sermon, the series title is Meeting Jesus in Matthew. Now, two years ago in 2019, we worked through the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a good bit of time on that. And this fall, up till Thanksgiving, we will get to Matthew chapter 20. In Advent, we will do the parables of Jesus from Matthew, and then we'll probably take a break and then finish Matthew sometime in 2022. Now, a little bit about Matthew. Matthew is the first gospel listed in the Christian New Testament. If you've never looked at a Bible, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first book in the New Testament of the 27 New Testament books is Matthew. It's the first listed, but it is most likely not the first written gospel. That would have been the gospel of Mark. Now, as a book, the Gospel of Mark is broken down into five teaching blocks. There's five teaching blocks throughout the Gospel and with stories in between. See, there's no words without deeds. There's no deeds without words. Now, before we get into this particular text this morning, I want to give you a couple hints as you might read through the Gospel of Matthew, as you read Matthew. One thing is when you're reading Matthew to look for notes of fulfillment, of fulfillment. Matthew is at pains to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. He's at pains to show that Jesus is not coming from nowhere, but there's this story that began long before Jesus' life on this earth, that Jesus is just a continuation of that story. I mean, the last verse from our text this week says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So look for notes of fulfillment, but also pay attention to who accepts Jesus and who rejects him. The least, the lost, the lonely, the outsider tend to be those who accept Jesus in the gospel of Matthew and all the gospels for that matter. Which gets us to our passage today. And the passage we pick up today in verse 1 of chapter 8, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Teaching, down from the Mount of the Sermon on the Mount, into the valley. He comes into the valley where he will perform ten mighty works in chapters 8 and 9. Today, uh, the reading covered the first three of those healings, which I want to show you in just a second how they hold together, but we're only going to focus on the first. But before we do, I do want to show you how these first three hold together. This is, I think this is really cool, maybe a little bit nerdy on my part, but I want you to see the artistry of Matthew and the intentionality of Jesus, okay? Now, stay with me for just a second. I want you to think in geographic and concentric circles, okay? In the Jewish imagination, in the Jewish imagination, Jerusalem is the holy city, and because it is a holy city, because it is a walled city, I should say, lepers, like the one we find here in verses 1 to 4, were banned from the city of Jerusalem because it's a walled city. And at the center of the city of Jerusalem is the temple. And the first thing that you would come to as you came to the temple was the court of the Gentiles, which is as far as a non-Jewish person could come. So Matthew 5, in the verses 5 to 13, we see a Gentile coming to Jesus and being healed, his servant. Okay, so you, city of Jerusalem. Court of Gentiles. Moving a little bit further into the temple from the court of the Gentiles, the next court is the court of women, which was as far as a Jewish woman could go. And if you look at verses 14 and 15, you see Jesus healing what? A Jewish woman, right? Beyond the court of the women was the holy place where only Jewish men could go. And at the very center of the Jewish imagination, at the center of the temple, was the holy of holies where only one Jewish man could go, the high priest, and that only once a year. Now you got those concentric city, temple, courts, okay? Here at the outset of Jesus' ministry, he comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, 
And one by one, he starts breaking walls down and welcoming outsiders. He welcomes and heals a leper. The Jesus gospel is for the unclean. Jesus welcomes and heals a non-Jew. The gospel is for all races. Jesus welcomes and heals a woman. The gospel is for all sexes, all genders. And then at the end of the gospel, in Matthew chapter 27, at the moment of Jesus' death, verse 51 of, John, of Matthew 27, the curtain at the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom. You see, the gospel is for all of us. I think that's pretty cool. I just, you know, uh, I just think that's a super cool. That Jesus, the way that it's intentionally and artistically set out, these first three miracles are concentrically breaking down to show who the gospel is for. But this week I do want to focus on these first four verses. And I want us to see just how compelling a figure Jesus is in these short, four, four short verses. I want to see that Jesus enters our brokenness, that he accepts authentic faith, and that Jesus welcomes and makes us whole. First, Jesus enters our brokenness. Now again, it's after the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has come down the mountain, and he immediately is met by a leper. Now to be a leper, it's a skin disease, means that literally you were falling apart. Your skin was falling off. Painful, misery. But it wasn't just physical suffering. Socially, to be a leper was to be a pariah. Because the disease was contagious, you were not allowed to go anywhere near other people. You had to stay in the wilderness. Lepers in the book of Leviticus, chapters 13 and 14 is where you can read this. They were commanded to have disheveled hair and disheveled clothes so that people coming near would know who they were and to stay away. Can you imagine having to be dressed that said, stay away from me? They had to live without touch. They couldn't come near in inhabited places. Spiritually, they were believed to be cursed by God. They were excluded from worship. They couldn't come to church. And if you encountered, if you as, an, as a non-leprous person encountered a leper, you actually were made unclean. Uncleanliness traveled from them to you. You were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go to worship if you had contact with a leper. The book of Levit uh, Leviticus lists all these quarantine guidelines. And let me quote, I'm not kidding, this is a commentary that was published in 1987 and then republished in 2004, which is to say, not this year. This is what he writes, quoting from Leviticus. Lepers were to, quote, cover their face when near people and cry out, unclean, unclean, in order to keep the community from pollution by getting too close. Rabbis kept six feet between themselves and lepers. End quote. Quarantined, covered faces, six feet, Leviticus 13 and 14 is the original social distancing protocols. But seriously, stay with this. To be a leper was to be ostracized. It was to be helpless, despairing, hopeless. Let me read what is the saddest verse to me in Leviticus 13 and 14. This is Leviticus 13, 46. Lepers shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. To be a leper was to be a dead man walking, unable to fully be an Israelite, unable to fully be a human being. An awful, lonely existence, basically just waiting to die. And let me just say as an aside, this is what disease does to people. You know, this weekend we celebrated, uh, or I shouldn't say celebrate, we remembered, we commemorated 
what happened 20 years ago. And in my lifetime, the trauma of 9-11 was actually the moment when our country was the most united, right? If you were alive, then you remember those moments. You remember the World Series. You remember those first ball games. You remember the unity. But this, this pandemic, I've never seen us so divided. Disease divides us. Which is why one of the great hopes of Christianity and the promises of Christianity is that Jesus will put an end to illness. And it's not just about the physical healing. It's about community. It's about being together. It's about not being divided. But before we talk about that, what I want us to see first is Jesus enters into that world of division and brokenness and sickness and uncleanness. He enters in. Jesus is so compelling. He doesn't stay in heaven like he could have. He came near. He did not stay on the mount of teaching. He came down into the valley of sickness, of death, and of crowds. He's not a remote philosopher or teacher of religion, right? Several years ago, I did some reading in comparative religion. And one reason that Buddhism is not compelling to me is I read a biography of Siddhartha, the founder of Buddhism. He removed himself from people. He literally left his family. But not Jesus. Jesus comes near. He comes into our brokenness, into our uncleanness, into our world. He's so compelling. He enters the brokenness. And as he enters the brokenness, he encounters this broken, hurting man. But this broken, hurting man who evinces an authentic faith. Which Let's look at that. Jesus accepts this authentic faith. Look with me at verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I want to notice three things about the leper's faith. The first thing about the leper's faith is its vulnerability. His vulnerability. He's willing to express his need. He knows he's unclean. And he says, Jesus, you can make me clean. You can heal me. You can re-enter me into the community. You can make me clean before God himself. This leper knew his weakness. He knew he needed salvation on so many levels. He knew it and he expressed it. I think as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, when we see that so many outcasts and outsiders, the least and the lonely, accept Jesus, it's because they're okay. They know they're weak. They know they have needs and they're willing to express it. And that's hard for us, upper middle class, right? It's hard for us. If I were to name some of the besetting sins of the North Shore, I would say that top of the list, if not top one, top three, is a lack of vulnerability. We have trouble being weak. We have trouble expressing our weakness. We, we have trouble talking about our needs. And at some level, faith is simply telling God what's really going on inside. The real hurts. Maybe it's not leprosy, but what's really going on inside. Faith at some level is just telling God and another person or two what is really on your heart and mind. So first we see the vulnerability of this leper. Second, we see his confidence. He trusts that God can heal. Jesus, if you want to, you can make me clean. There's a confidence in Jesus that he brings. And too often we think that Jesus either doesn't care or he doesn't care enough to do something about it. Or he won't. He's not powerful enough. But just think. I mean, see if you see yourself in this leper. He's sick. He's lonely. He doesn't have friends. He's broken relationship with his family. He can't be in relationship with his family. And he's in chronic pain. 
I mean, if I were to take a poll of this room, I bet one of those things is besetting you today, if not two, three, or four of those. You see, Jesus can, God can heal. And he knows that he has this confidence, but he also, he also thirdly has a humility. There's this confidence, but then this humility. And I owe this point to Tim Keller, because the person comes and he drops his conditions. He says, you can if you want to, if you want to. He's dropped the conditions, if you are willing, Jesus. So many of us, we're tempted when we come to God to have our preconditions. We want Jesus to meet our needs. We say, Jesus, I'll follow you if, fill in the blank. So often what we really want is a genie in the bottle to take our hurt away and give us what we want. And when God does not deliver, when God does not give us exactly what we want, when we want it, we get mad at him and push him away. You know, sometimes because God loves us, his answer is no, or not now. And so my question to you this morning is, can you ask boldly and accept no for an answer? That's what this leper, he's saying, I'm going to ask boldly, but I know that no may be the answer. You see his vulnerability, his confidence, and his humility. He's a, co- he's a combination of those three, vulnerability, confidence, and humility. He expresses his need. Vulnerability, confidence, you can do this, Jesus, and also humility. He lets God be God. He, lets, he drops the conditions, if you will. And I think it's worth taking, I wish, you know, I'm glad this, this afternoon's Rock the Blog, but I kind of wish our grace groups were meeting today, because I'd love to have this as a question in our grace groups. And since we're not meeting this week, talk to your spouse, talk to a good friend, and say, you know, which of those three aspects of faith is the one that I struggle with? What do you think? And ask yourself, do I struggle with the vulnerability of faith? Do I struggle with the confidence of faith? Or do I struggle with the humility of faith, letting God be God? Well, here's the deal. Jesus tends to respond pretty positively uh, to people who display an authentic, humble, confident faith. Which brings us to the third point, that Jesus welcomes and makes whole. Now, I do need to address this issue of miracles. Miracles, okay? Um, Now, the New Testament witness, stay with me for a second here. New Testament witness is that Jesus did these things, okay? He did things like heal a leper, a centurion servant at a distance. And I know that for some of you in this room, there is skepticism about that. And I cannot produce the the dashboard cam video that shows you that this happened. But nor can anyone else say that it didn't happen because you weren't there. Matthew is saying this happened. And in the New Testament, in the ancient world, eyewitness testimony, it was the dash cam video of its day. This is how the truth was established, eyewitness testimony. Now, so even if you're skeptical, and if you're skeptical, please talk to Nick or me, or I mean, please process this, I get it. But even if you're skeptical about miracles and these things happening, just hear me out for just a second, because let me talk about this idea of miracles, because actually the New Testament never uses the word miracle. Isn't that interesting? We call it miracles. New Testament never uses the word miracle. There's one time in Matthew 21 where the writer, Matthew, says thalmason, which is like the sense of causing a thing that causes wonder. But it's actually not the word miracle. When the New Testament talks about these type of things happening, it uses a word like paradoxa, which means something that's not expected. The word dunamis, which means power or authority, or sima, a sign. The New Testament sense is not so much something that causes wonder to prove who Jesus is, The more sense is it's a mighty work or a mighty sign that points to the renewal of all things. Let me paraphrase New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. This is a paraphrase. The New Testament does not have overtones of invasion from another world. Rather, a power at work 
within the created order, enabling the creation to be more truly itself. You see, Jesus did not come to produce wonders for the sake of wonders. He came to make all things new, to make things right. He came to make us who we were meant to be. He came to make us our best and truest self. You see, the healing of the leper, this mini-resurrection, it points forward to the resurrection of Jesus at the end of the New Testament. And the resurrection of Jesus points forward to your resurrection and mine at the end of time. Which is the way of the day when you and I are finally and fully ourselves. Released to be who God created us to be without sin holding us back. That's what this is pointing forward to. You being you. The you you've always wanted to be. Finally and truly yourself. So what happens here? What, ha- what, what happens? Let's get back to the narrative. First, Jesus says, I am willing. You can be clean. And that word... I will is too weak. It actually means I desire. I want this for you. I want this for you. And then Jesus reaches out and he touches the leper. Did he need to touch the leper? He did not. He did not need to touch the leper. First, we know that in the very next miracle, Jesus is able to heal at a distance. He doesn't even go with the centurion, right? He heals at a distance. We also know that in the other healings of lepers in the scriptures... There's no touching. When Elijah heals Naaman, he doesn't even come near him. When Moses heals his sister Miriam of leprosy, he does not touch her. Jesus did not need to touch this man to heal him. But even if this man did not know it, he didn't ask to be touched. This man needed to be touched. And Jesus reaches out and he grabs the man. He grabs the man. The onlookers must have been shocked. Nobody touched lepers. As one commentator says, the gospel is in that grasp. Here is a man who had not been touched in years, maybe decades, being touched by the most sought-after man in the region, the very Son of God. Touched, healed, renewed to community, integrated back into his life. This is a mini-resurrection. Jesus, I mean, friends, no one is beyond the healing touch of Jesus. No one. Not you, not anyone, you are. everyone is within the healing grasp of Jesus. He reaches out and he touches us. The gospel is in that grasp. But then something a little funny happens. This is beautiful story of healing and reconciliation and welcome. And then Jesus says, basically, don't tell anybody. Look with me, verse 4. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. And offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof. Don't tell anybody. Go make sure you're ceremonially clean so you can be reinstated. What's going on, Jesus? Let him tell other people. This will help your ratings. More people will come to you. More people will be healed, right? More social media views. This is good. Why are you so shy, Jesus? Here's why. We have an amazing ability. We have an amazing ability to create and make Jesus in our own image. Uh, several of us heard a sermon a couple weeks ago at a Presbytery meeting where the intro, I wish I had a transcript of the intro, is so good, but the preacher basically went through and he named all the ways that we have made Jesus in our own image. He talked about the fair-skinned and blue-eyed Jesus. He talked about the African-American Jesus with African-American features. He talked about uh, the Jesus being portrayed as a South American uh, revolutionary in the the guise of Che Guevara. There's so many ways that we try to make Jesus, you and me, in, in our own image. 
And Jesus wants to tell his own story. And in this context, he doesn't want to be seen as a wonder worker who's just kind of going around touching people, making them well. Nor does he want to be seen as a national liberator coming to overthrow the Romans. You see, Jesus wants you to know who he is. And to understand Jesus, you must understand his teaching. You must understand his mighty works. But above all, you must understand something that hadn't happened in his life yet. You must understand the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because it's only at the cross that we see what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And he came to save and to forgive us of our sins. And it's only at the empty tomb that we see the full power of God and the promise of the renewal of all things. So he tells the leper to be quiet because he wants the whole story to be known. The whole story, including crucifixion and resurrection. But that's not the only strange thing in that verse. Because what has happened? Jesus, Jesus tells the leper to go to the priest. Do all the ceremonial stuff, show you're clean, and then you can re-enter the community. Okay, go do that, leper. But Jesus doesn't go to the priest. According to Leviticus 13 14, he's supposed to go to the priest. He has touched a leper. He doesn't go. He's unclean, right? Jesus doesn't go. Tim Keller, again, for the first time in history, the unclean has become clean. And by not going to the priest, Jesus is saying, I am cleanliness. I bring cleanliness. I heal. I don't have to go to the priest. Friends, this is the epitome and the power of the gospel. Jesus can touch you and make you clean. And you don't make him unclean. And by the way, you can't clean yourself up. Can't do it. You can't clean yourself up. But Jesus can touch you and make you clean. No matter what you think you bring, whatever's in the, that dark recess of your corner that you're never going to tell anybody, not even your spouse, Jesus can touch that and make it clean. He can. He does. He will if you'll let him. So this text asks us at least three fundamental questions. And with this, I want to close. These are just the natural questions that arise from a text like this. The first question is this, and every person needs to answer this individual. We need to answer it as a church. But what is it, let me say it this way, who are, who are the outsiders in your life? Who are the outsiders in our time, in our place, that need to be welcomed? And how can we go to them and welcome them in with the welcome of Jesus? I don't know what the list is. Let me throw out a couple things. Is it addicts, adulterers, people who are homeless? People who have declared bankruptcy. People who are socially awkward. Who in your life needs the welcome of Jesus? They may be rich. They may be poor. They may be popular. They may be lonely. They could be all across the spectrum. Who in your world is an outsider and needs the welcome, even the touch, of Jesus? Second question. Good question for Presbyterians. Do you believe that Jesus can heal? Do you believe, or are you with a leper who says, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. Do you believe that Jesus can heal sickness, chronic pain? Do you believe he can mend broken relationships? Maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Maybe you're estranged from your parents or from your children. Maybe you are stuck in a cycle of addiction that you just can't break out. With humility and confidence... Can you say, if you will, you can make me clean? Do you believe that Jesus can heal? But three, and most importantly, have you been touched personally by the cleansing hand 
of Jesus? Have you been touched by Jesus? Do you know that you can't clean yourself up? Do you know that you can't make him unclean? Do you know that he knows? And have you let him in? Have you been touched by the cleansing hand of Jesus? On Friday night, well, I will say this. First of all, this compels me. Like, I get excited about this Jesus, the real Jesus of the New Testament, who enters our brokenness, who welcomes us, who heals us, who makes us whole, who offers us the promise of resurrection when all this, all the bad things will become untrue. I'm compelled. But second, on Friday night uh, in our, our 20-year celebration, 100 year, I got ahead of myself there, um, I, uh, the founding pastor of this church was a man named uh, Bill James, and we invited him to come and be with us, but he couldn't. Uh, and so we, he and I did a Zoom interview and we recorded it and we played part of the interview on uh, Friday night. But one of the last questions I asked Bill, founding pastor of this church, I said, Bill, uh, what are your hopes for Grace Presbyterian Church? What do you hope for us? I mean, you founded this church 20 years ago. You did such a hard thing. Uh, what do you hope for us as we go forward? And he said, the Grace Presbyterian Church, my hope, will never get enough of Jesus. Amen and Amen. May Grace Presbyterian Church never cease to be compelled and amazed. Never get enough of Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our God, we thank you that we cannot plumb the depths of your love, your mercy, your justice. We're just scratching the surface here. We're just babies waiting in a pool when the ocean beckons for us. And God, we pray that by your grace that we would take one more small step towards you to understanding more of your fullness, your love, your healing, and your welcome. And God, I pray for this church as I pray for myself and my family that we would never, ever get enough of you and we would just long and desire and want more and more of you all the days of our life. Would it be so? For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.